This is a HeadGum Podcast. While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. To overdo a Game of Thrones podcast for Game of Thrones heads. My name's Craig. My name's Andrew. Yeah. First of his name. I'm <laughs> the Twilight King, and I'm mm-hmm. here to steal your stuff. And so, yeah, as as everyone knows, the season the season finale of Game of Thrones was just a little bit ago as we record this. <laughs> and boy, there are some explosive revelations, some deaths, some undeaths. Like I can't believe that the whole time the dragons were just complicated machines with people inside them working the wings and stuff. See, now... Like a bug's life. Now, I'd been on all of the subreddits, so I knew Mm -hmm. that that was coming because of some letters on pages in the earlier books. Right, yeah. It's a popular fan theory as I understand it now. Like, I try not to spoil myself with stuff from the books. You're better about that than I am. Mm -hmm. I, I appreciate that about you. I also did not know that Daenerys was just like a pop star. That was a mm-hmm. weird turn at the end of the episode. Yeah, like I guess it, I, I don't know. It made sense within the context of the episode, but I just, I don't think it was super organic. Um, I thought it was a little weird that they brought Ned Stark back to life, but the only thing he says is how you doing? <laughs> and he's played by Matt LeBlanc and not Sean Bean. Yeah, but they've been recasting the whole series. You know, yeah, subtly. I mean, this is the first big one, I think. Time I did of, hear but... that they were almost gonna let the mountain say pizza, pizza this episode, but they cut it because of the oh, Ned Stark man. thing. God, why don't why do they cut all the best stuff from the books? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, dude loves food, pizza, pizza. <laughs> so, we're talking about George R.R. R. Martin this week, not mm-hmm. a song of ice and fire, though. We're gonna be talking about his book. Uh, Though, stay tuned after the credits for a scene of what we think about Game of Thrones. Oh, God. HBO now. (laughs) Uh, We're going to be talking about Dying of the Light. Is it The Dying of the Light or Dying of the Light, Andrew? Um, It's Dying of the Light. Great. And this is the first novel uh, published by one George Raymond Richard Martin. Yep. um, Recommended to us by patron donor uh, Michael. So thanks, Michael, for that. Uh, now, Andrew, have you read any of the uh, A S A Song o- of Ice and Fire? Yeah, any true fan would know a soif. What it was called a soif, <laughs> as they are called by fans. I ha- I read the first a soif book <laughs> after I watched the first season of the hit HBO television series, and then oh, GOT. I read yeah yeah GOT 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 as it's called by fans. Um, and then I read like the first half of the second I saw you youth book. Yep. Sound like you're um, doing a Street Fighter move. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I didn't. Yeah, I didn't end up finishing it. And actually, that was um, 
those are some of the last like pre overdue books that I read where I could just like not finish a book and it would be fine. Oh man. I can't remember the last time I walked away from a book. Uh, Yeah. We're not allowed anymore. That's our blessing and our curse. So if you haven't listened to the show before, one of us uh, has read this week's book. Andrew read this one and we're going to talk about it. I have not read it. He's going to explain it to me. I'm going to ask questions when I can. Uh, and we're also going to teach you a little bit about George R. R. Martin. If you don't know who he is, if you like found this podcast on a USB drive like 50 years from now in Sconston Ice and you like need a refresher as to who the little man who wrote those Asoif books was. Asoif. Uh, so George Raymond Richard Martin was born. He was born George Raymond Martin. Do you know why he added another name? I think it's a confirmation name, actually. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, like a really like normal reason. <laughs> but now That's, I was assuming it was an eccentric like sci-fi fantasy writer reason, but uh, I guess not. I don't think so. I don't think so. Um if if that's if someone else knows like why he started using it as an author, but I know that he took it as his confirmation name. Um he was born in Jersey in Bayonne, New Jersey. Um there's an interview with him in NJ Monthly from a couple years back. Uh, that I love, I love local ish publications. They're great. Um, that talks about how his like situation growing up, like was in a really dense urban industrial neighborhood. Um, he talks about his, like his, like life was lived on first street to fifth street from like school to his house. So he did a lot of reading uh of you know tolkien and other fantasy stuff and comic books and things like that but he also credits that community as like may it's it might be a little bit of like retconning of your own life but like you look back at your childhood and you're like why am i interested in like multi-layered historical fiction with fantasy or sci-fi mm-hmm. uh and he talks about how like from within the the like low income urban environment he was in he could see either like ships coming in from countries all over the world or see where like rich people lived you know in Manhattan or whatever it might be so he feels like growing up he was like assimilating both a, a healthy diet of uh fantasy fiction and and supernatural stuff and also this like understanding that the world is not just this you know, it's not just discrete areas. It's not just like, oh, here's your suburban enclave. Here's your yada, yada, yada. Uh, uh-huh. An awareness of social systems. He also loves that this interview asked him about food and why he writes about food all the time. They asked him what his favorite New Jersey food was. And he did say pizza, Andrew. <laughs> so, you know. I feel like that's a cop out. Can you? Yeah. I mean, what are you going to say? Mozzarella. That's no, what I you're going like... to say. There are different, like New York has pizza, I guess, and Chicago has pizza. But if you're, or like Italy, maybe he specifically living... he specifically said bar pizza, which he described okay. as like a really thin crust pizza that he got when his dad was like taking him to a bar to watch a football okay. game or something. I understand that, and also like bar pizza comes with like the the dollar like corner pizza that you can get in new york city it's different. Is, yes sure it's it's both about the pizza itself and the like state that you're in when you eat the pizza mm-hmm. those are both like really hard to separate from each other so okay I, I'm, I'm on board i wasn't on board at first but now i'm on board okay. with his answer of pizza <laughs> as his favorite food 
one of the interesting things about Martin is that even now he's like a huge presence in the convention scene and like fandom and fan communities. Uh, you can trace a line to like him being a high school kid, uh, like getting into comics. He would write letters to the editors and got a couple published in issues of Fantastic Four. I don't know mm-hmm. what he was writing about, but then like people started writing him letters because they read his letters in a comic book, which is like some That's pretty wild. That's what people did before email, yeah, I guess. It's in- um, interesting. Well, and I know he was a he was a fan of Tolkien. Yes, he very much was. Which was a big like obviously a huge influence on him in terms of like world building and I if he started including that second R to so he also oh, could sure. be something R R something. I wouldn't be completely surprised. It's not by a that. bad story if that's the case. <laughs> um, he did say of Lord of the Rings, uh, when like a lot of people like to talk about Martin's, you know, particular the Asoif books, uh, with regard to Tolkien, and his sense that like it's it's gritty. People like it because it's grittier because it doesn't have like conventional hero narratives and whatever. But I think. Tolkien has talked about not Tolkien, excuse me, Martin has said about Tolkien that he likes that the world is infused with this great sense of magic, this is a quote but there's very little on stage magic so you have a sense of it but it's kept under very tight control and he really took it to heart when he was starting his own series and you see that certainly as someone who's watched the show anyway like you see that in the beginning of the show and now it's just whatever, I don't know what's going on yeah, yeah, it's Calvin Ball but yeah, like magic exists but it is not like people have done magic ever, but people are not doing magic right now in front of you. Correct. And we were we talked about that when we did the Tolkien books. Like Tolkien books created Dungeons and Dragons, but they're very different from all the books that came after Dungeons and Dragons, where like people were sitting down to cast fireball and stuff. Mm-hmm. Where like I don't know, Gandalf just kind of makes stuff happen when he like, does, he can cast fireball, but he doesn't <laughs> doesn't do it too often. It's he doesn't make a big thing about it. He doesn't have like magic points, as far as I know. He's got infinite. Like Gandalf the White is totally OP, by the way. <laughs> it's true. Uh, they got to nerf him in the next patch. Um, <laughs> Martin got two journalism degrees uh, from Northwestern, um, and then he was a conscientious objector during Vietnam. Um, I think. In particular, the journalism thing is interesting because then when he set out to write these books and, and all of his uh, fiction kind of has this like historical fiction bent to it. He's interested in, in world building, as we'll talk about. Yeah. Um, this one was published in 1977. Uh, he then went to go on and write like he wrote some vampire books he wrote horror stories one is called like the pear-shaped man like just he's got some weird books in his catalog uh (laughs) he worked on tv for a lot in the 80s he worked on max headroom he worked on a failed twilight zone reboot he worked on the beauty and the beast tv show and he ultimately turned back to writing novels because people kept telling him that his scripts were like too big and they kept needing to cut stuff so he was like, well, what if I just wrote these fancy books that are too big and no one has to cut anything? Mm-hmm. Uh, and lo and behold, they made a TV show out of it. <laughs> so, Well, and for a few years, I know like he wrote a Game of Thrones episode a year. And more recently, I don't think he's done that. Yes, but that's for, true. I think for the first four or five years, like he would do the script for, for one. He's also off working on some other 
pilots of other like adaptations of his work adaptations of other people's work uh when i mentioned he's like part of the sci-fi and and fantasy fan community he's also like a big wig within the science fiction author community mm-hmm. and like promoting you know the various awards and conventions and things so I, I think he's also been like attempting to champion other people's work or gets picked up for some of those exec producing credits um he i did not know this andrew he owns a movie theater in santa fe he owns the jean cocteau huh. theater which is part of an independent group of theaters that was one of the few places to air that movie where the guy from Superbad killed Kim Jong Un, the interview. Oh, the the yeah, the interview. Um, James Franco yeah, one. Yeah, okay. Which I just thought was like weird. I just didn't know that that it's yeah that is a little strange. I mean that that movie is. I don't think anyone would ever have heard of it if it hadn't been correct. <laughs> pulled and like but. hacked and yeah um i just that's was just fascinating to me yeah um and and then i just want to talk a little bit about so he's got a website he's also got a blog called not a blog it's a lot it's on his it's on live journal which i love mm-hmm. i love everybody who uses archaic <laughs> blogging platforms still in 2017 he, it sounds like i'm making fun of them but i'm never doing and it I'm he, all, i always love it he still uses like the little emotions at the end of every post it's pretty great so one of the, <sighs> i do bring this up uh the last thing we should probably talk about is there was a post of his in 2009 called to my detractors and it starts Uh-oh. with a little caveat. If you are not one of my detractors, this is not about you. Thanks for your support. <laughs> <laughs> and then he goes on to talk about um, the rising tide of venom about the lateness of A Dance with Dragons. And how everyone's really mad that he has interests other than Game of Thrones books. And he says... Quote, after all, as some of you like to point out in your emails, I'm 60 years old and fat and you don't want me to pull a quote Robert Jordan on you and (laughs) deny you your book. Okay, I've got the message. You don't want me to do anything except a song of ice and fire ever. Parentheses. Well, maybe it's okay if I take a leak once in a while. And then he said, like, here's my response. And then it's just a YouTube video that is now unavailable. So I don't know what it was. I don't I know he like poked fun at it later in another YouTube series. It's you could probably find it somewhere, I bet. It's possible. Um for for people without the the frame of reference, Robert Jordan was the author of the Wheel of Time series who never was as serially late with deadlines and things as Robert Jordan was, but the series kept getting longer and longer and that like and then he announced that the planned like 12th and last book of the series actually needed to be three books and then he passed away before he could finish any of them yeah and then someone else had and, to finish um, them brandon and... and brandon sanderson came in and, and wrapped everything up and he did he did a fine job but um yeah yeah i don't know i've read all the wheel of time books let's we talk about it off the air yeah well what well, i just find that whole like thing interesting and certainly now the show has eclipsed the books and if you read anything on the internet, you are aware that Game of Thrones exists at this point because there's a cottage mm-hmm. industry of just talking about it. Um, but that's an interesting byproduct of being so involved in the fan community is that you've now created, you've exacerbated that like 
tenuous ownership relationship that you've now created extra access to yourself that people might not have felt entitled to otherwise yes and now i guess fans always like the ones who are going to complain at you about stuff generally feel entitled to do whatever they want that's true it's just it's also part of being on the internet now where it's like oh because he's talking he like posts about watching football and they're like write a book well okay I think Neil I think Neil Gaiman like wrote a defense piece for him at one point. Um it's a whole th- And like I get it, but my dude like the last Game of Thrones book came out like 3 months or so after the show came on, like after it premiered. Yeah. And the next book after that still hasn't come out and the 7th season just ended. So like what <laughs> Like, yeah it was a, i think you've i think you gotta take a couple of these lumps my man well he also thought that the series was gonna be three books which just come on so did robert jordan whoops and then six and then eight and then 12 and then 15 i think it's a mess why we, <laughs> what i've learned is why create anything people are just gonna want more of it yeah or you're gonna make it and people are gonna complain about it well that's the other side uh, you want to take a break and then we'll come back and talk about Dying of the Light? Let's take a break. Hey, Greg, I know it's August and the summer's not over yet, but winter is coming. And if you want to make a website about it, you should try Squarespace. Oh, our sponsor this week. Oh, our sponsor this week because it, cause it's winter's on its way and it's a perfect time to to shovel some bits and bytes onto a web platform yep and so the whole the rest of the copy i'm realizing is still about summer so uh (laughs) make a splash with a brand new website for your business turn your cool idea into a hot new website (laughs) well Regardless of the season, you can use a Squarespace website to showcase your work, blog or publish content, sell products and services, promote your business, announce an upcoming event or special project like a wedding or or a podcast or a podcast podcast wedding. And and, and there's a whole lot more. Craig, how does Squarespace make all this work? They've got how they do it. They've got beautiful templates that you can use. They have e-commerce functionality so you can like sell stuff. Uh, You can customize how it looks and feels with just a few clicks. You don't have to like code or anything. Um, It works for mobile devices. They got analytics. There's free secure hosting, and they have 24-7 award-winning customer support. So if you do have any problems, they got your back. Uh, they got your back. Uh, if you want to find out more, you can go to squarespace.com. Uh, you can register a domain name. Uh, you can start your free website or online store trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code OVERDUE to save 10% on your order. That's 10%, guys. You're going to want to save that 10% when the Night King comes. I'm just telling you. Yeah, winter is coming, so you got to hoard all your percents that you can get, and we're giving you 10 of them back that <laughs> you would have spent on Squarespace otherwise. Squarespace, don't build an ice wall, build a website. Hey, Andrew. <clears throat> Hi, Greg. You ready to do the rest of this show? Yeah. Don't sound so excited. Tell me <laughs> about this book, Dying of the Light. We talked about Martin's fantasy stuff, but this is not fantasy, is it? I mean, in, except in so far as sci-fi is just fantasy in space. Don't at me. <laughs> <I'm>... <laughs> okay. 
Sure. I don't I don't actually want to get into a fight. It's just a funny joke. Everybody close your Twitter clients and just like sit on your hands for another 30 minutes and we'll be we'll be out of here. Okay. Um, this is so like we said, it's George R. R. Martin's first novel and it was published in 1977 and it was nominated for both the Hugo Award and um the British Fantasy Award in 1978 and 1979, respectively. So it's his debut, but it it's pretty well regarded. He obviously went on to do stuff that that overshadows it, but uh, and it's this, set, is, this is where things begin. He did set other books and stories in this universe, but it's unclear to me if they're like sequential yeah, the, these not. these books are related to each other the way that... Um, Kevin Smith movies are related to each other. <laughs> okay. This is like the view askew universe. Okay. It's, he calls it the thousand words universe, but it's there like thousand tons worlds, tons of... thousand worlds. Is that what I said? You said words, which also George R. R. Martin. It's if, if he could keep it to a thousand words, that would be good. Um, no, I, I, a thousand worlds is what I meant. Um, um, other books include Sand Kings, Night Flyers, A Song for Laia, and then some other stories. Stories, yeah. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't know that the characters in this book are ever seen again. That's not the impression that I got from researching. Cool. So, what is it about? What happens? Um, hmm. I don't know if this is one where I just want to go blow by blow through the plot. Well, I think... but just tell. But like, what happens? <laughs> All right, so let me try and build a bit of a world for you because that's what George R. R. Martin does. In this Great, book. okay. Uh, there's this planet called Warlorn. Yeah, <laughs> and it is what they call, and this is a real life thing. It's what is called a rogue planet. Oh, that is a which, like it's just untethered. It's just alone. Yeah, a planet without like an orbit around any particular star. Okay. And so this planet Warlorn is um, like Earth exists in this universe, even though you don't ever really see it. Um, it's it's basically, as far as I can tell, set in some kind of future where interplanetary travel has been established and there are like humanoid species kind of all over the place. But it's not a Star Trek thing where you can just bop off to Vulcan in like half an hour or something like there's it takes a lot of time to travel between sure sure places okay um so Warlorn is just like drifting chilling and for a period of I believe about a decade it gets close enough to a star system that it becomes like warm and livable for a while now were people so, on it while it was flying or now no, it is warm and because it was cold and dark and bad okay great <laughs> sure um and so when it when it becomes nice enough for people to go to it actually becomes this sort of hub of multiculturalism where you've got like a dozen different planets and cultures all bringing in their like native animals and plant life and building their own like unique cities and building a subway system to connect them all and having a big festival every year. And, um, yeah, they, and they do this for a while until the planet starts drifting out of the, you know, out of the field of these stars. I don't know what the, what the word I'm actually the gravitational for is, but it's field. No, it's just like, they are, it, it's not going to be light enough or hot enough for oh, anything to survive there for much longer. Out of the Goldilocks zone as it were. Sure. Yes. 
Um, so we are we spend most of this book on Warlorn, but it's a Warlorn that's only livable because of like a heat trapping force field that people installed. <laughs> yeah, okay. Like it's it's on its way out. Not very many people are left, and it's it's slowly dying. And that's like that's what the title is in reference I mean, the, to. Also the also the Dylan Thomas poem. Uh, yeah, do not go gently into that good night. Rage, but like rage. in the context of the yeah in the context of the book that's what it means okay um i mean the, the title of the planet basically means fighting about being sad it's like a portmanteau for f- fighting I mean, about it is, sadness spelled, it is spelled w-o-r-l-o-r-n so i don't know if that changes your is analysis it, it does because now it's just a sad world i think <laughs> it is a very sad name <laughs> for this for the planet Okay, are there like, as this is structured in the book, is it like a big info dump prologue? Is he writing it like historical fiction or is there like a main character? You get a bit of an info dump prologue where Warlorn is established and then you get thrown into the into the face of this main character his name is (laughs) Dirk Okay, and you spend all of your time in Dirk's head from here. Okay, cool. Um, and so what what happens from here is the, the basics of it is that Dirk is a sad sack. <laughs> Dirk receives like a gem that he gave to an ex-girlfriend a long time ago. And they agreed that like, I think they exchanged them when they were together and they were like, oh, if you ever need me for anything, just send me this gem. Okay. And so he gets the gem from from Gwen, this ex-girlfriend of his. And so he goes to Warlorn to like find her and help her and see what's up. Even though like years ago, they've been broken up for like seven or eight years. And years ago, like he sent the gem to her and she never showed up. Huh. What? It, okay. So off the bat, you you get the impression that maybe one of these people has moved on and the other <laughs> person has not. Oh, no. Um. So Dirk shows up to Warlorn and we get... Like we we in the prologue we gotten a little bit of a history of Warlorn, but now Martin like unfolds through like Dirk's eyes because Gwen is showing him around all the different cities and the way that things maybe used to be and the way things are dying off and like she is there with some other people and ostensibly like studying things like conducting research. Okay, because there are all these like one there are all these different animals and plants and stuff from all these different worlds interacting and two they are all slowly dying because the world is slowly dying (laughs) okay good to know that like all these space animals are like capable of living on the same planet with like some of the space animals are like actually kind of creepy and weird okay tell me more I mean, there are only a couple that come up over and over again, but there's this one called a banshee that's basically like a manta ray that floats in the sky and then wraps itself around you and eats you. (laughs) Yo, wait, but you said that the aliens brought their animals to this planet. So what guy was like, hey, we got to bring the banshee. (laughs) We got to bring the banshee. I imagine there was like a a species that was all over the place and just like wrecking up all the crops oh, and like yeah. eating people's cats and stuff. 
you know what like kill- an alf like an alf sort of yes. situation you know what and then you got to bring you got to bring in the banshees to eat the alfs yes <laughs> and then after that you just have it have a banshee problem. as monkeys to snakes we've got a problem here yeah. um okay so what what else do we learn about the world through his eyes that is like particularly interesting to you like in terms so, of how society is set up or whatever in terms of like warlorn and how society there works we don't get a ton of other stuff because most everybody is gone like there is this one cool city called um i think it's called challenge or something that is oh, the best me... name for a city <laughs> what let me just let me just make sure that's right i'm fairly sure it is challenge uh, yeah challenge challenge is the city and it's like you know the the spaceship from up not up um, from wally wally yeah that like takes care of everybody's every need and there's just like a big omnipresent voice that's always attending to you that's challenge the whole city is basically that okay it's like an automated so that's probably the most like fully there's also a creepy one where (laughs) Like the wind blows around all the buildings and makes music. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. So this kind of sounds like some uh, Ray Bradbury Martian Chronicle stuff. And it also sounds a little Asimov-y, but is it, am I wrong there? It's pronounced Asoif. <laughs> no. Talk. <laughs> I know you mean Isaac Asimov. Yeah, I do. Asimov. Isaac, A Song of Ice and Fire, the famous sci-fi writer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you get you get elements of that, and then like knowing now about the fact that this dude goes on to write Game of Thrones, Game sure. of Thrones, the Song of Ice and Fire stuff. Um, you you can see bits of that in here too. But so so what you actually get is uh, this culture of these people called the Cavalars. Okay. And so Gwen is actually with one of one of these guys. And then he is like not romantically with a second guy, but like they're like this unit. And so what we learn about these these people is that there was some like catastrophic disease on their world that killed like nine of every ten women. Ooh. And so women were like a precious resource that were to be hidden away and guarded and used like mostly for breeding and like as prizes and and stuff. And even though this was like many generations ago and the population of the planet is roughly 50, 50 again in now times, of course that like ancient calamity has caused a culture where women are generally communal property yeah okay and aren't really seen as as equal by by anybody and so like the best a a woman can hope to do is to graduate from being like communal property to being private property and it doesn't really amount to marriage but like that's probably the closest and that's on warlorn or that's where these dudes come from that's on the cavalar planet which i think is just called high cavalar okay that that one's not super creative (laughs) (laughs) so they took their cool culture and brought it to warlorn yeah like it was one of the one of the worlds that had a presence on warlorn okay day okay and so there are like there are four different factions of them, and some of them are more progressive and trying to push away from these old ways. Some of them are more conservative, and in addition to wanting to preserve the old ways, they also like aggressively hunt 
people who they don't see as human. They call them mock men. And the definition of a mock man is pretty much like anybody who you don't like. Oh, good. That's good. Yeah. That's great. Um, Sci-fi does a real good job of just like, let me make up a cool word for other and just have these people weaponize it through the rest of my book. Yeah, right. Um, so, yeah, like like Dirk is, I don't know. We'll talk about the story later. I want to talk about the stuff I like first. And what I do, <laughs> what I do like is the world building, like war, like a rogue planet sci-fi book is just like a cool idea for a book. Yeah, sure. Because, you know, you can, I think there's been other sci-fi that's been set in like dying world but th- to have something be like a communal meeting place and like this multicultural like happy festival planet for 10 years and then to start dying like to see it compressed into that that small a time frame is pretty interesting so are most and like of- to, to and to get to pick through like the remains of all these civilizations like just that's a yeah like as you're wandering around the planet with these characters like that is that's pretty well done that that's actually a really interesting device that contrasts well with like my low level knowledge of star trek so correct me if i'm wrong but there's all right you know i will i know there's a lot of (laughs) in in like especially in like the tng that i'm familiar with it's a lot of like oh here's a new civilization that's doing its thing we're gonna learn about it and like solve a crisis or or we're just gonna like play poker or something i don't really know yeah right like Um, classic classic trek usually would come like there were a ton of episodes especially in tng as they built out the the lore of it where you would deal with established races and you would tell little serialized arcs and stuff but the bulk of the show especially of the original series and a lot of tng and most of voyager was um, like here we're going to run into this new species and this new species is going to have like one central gimmick. <laughs> yep. And we're going to interact with them and learn something about ourselves and then warp off to and the then next just fly one. away. Yeah. <laughs> so I like the idea and it's a cool device of, oh, what if what if we meet all of these civilizations like past their prime? What if and, and also they're not the original civilizations, they're colonies of them. So, like, they brought what they liked the most of their own worlds or thought was the or most just important. just what they believed. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, right, what they believed the most. And so that's the, other, that's the other thing is you've got this giant, like, cultural fight that's happening among these Cavalar people. But because you've only got, like, a dozen or so of them, like on this planet still oh interesting it all like it all takes place in a microcosm with just a few people who've huh. got heads and and yeah okay that's cool anything else about like what earth humanity is up to that you get because really not like there's a there's a i mean to go speaking of asimov there's a very like foundation-esque period referred to as the interregnum where people just couldn't do interstellar travel for a while oh like they forgot or they messed it up or or just like there was a bunch of fighting or wars Mm. or something Mm. and it sent people it set people back technologically and so we are after that but i you know one gets the impression that you never get back to that you haven't gotten back to that peak i guess oh well it's not new anymore you had to scrap for it and you know all the junk that you did after you got it the first time (laughs) 
and a bunch of people got stranded on planets i bet and everyone's salty about it so this sound this just sucks it sounds like it sucks <laughs> this future blows i'm very well, interested I mean, to learn just, about it, it but it, it sounds like it blows it takes months to get to travel between anywhere and anywhere else that's true sure and so yeah you you get i i feel like people don't travel super willingly or like enthusiastically mm. in this mm-hmm. world and like you don't you'd spend all your time on warlorn like you get to warlorn and then you're there for the entire rest of the book so you don't really you don't really get a sense of that except to read between the lines and um and that is one thing Mar- uh, martin does really well is like without huge exposition dumps just like with dialogue between characters like telling you about just how stuff is. And what well, does, does like it... the the most the most exposition dumpy thing is this passage where Dirk like reads somebody's research paper about <laughs> okay. Cavalar culture. So that <laughs> it, that one's a bit of a fudge, but the rest of it's pretty organic. And like organically motivated like it is in, it matters that I am telling this other character this thing about the world because yeah. of whatever we're we're up to. Okay. Mm-hmm. Cool. Um so it sounds like then you had some issues maybe or were just not as enthused by like the plot part. Well, so what Martin does, and I think this is a a, a common-ish criticism of like the later Aswaif books. Sure. Where he just decides like, oh, I'm not going to concentrate on the characters everybody likes. I'm just going to do some <laughs> weird other characters for a while. Okay. Um. He creates this really interesting world that is obviously well thought out and is like Tolkien-esque in its ability to imply that there is more than you are just seeing. Sure. Like in Fellowship of the Ring, you you always or you know, all those all the books, you I think Fellowship's the most like lore heavy and like yeah, backstory yeah. heavy. Mm-hmm. But you get the sense that like behind all these events is this internally consistent universe and you're just dropping in on you're dropping in on one story, but it is one story that is like part of a bunch of stories. Yes. And so what what Martin does really, really well is he gives you like you spend all your time with this one dude on this one planet. But despite that, like just by characters talking to each other and thinking things you imply this whole wide universe of different planets and stuff. And it kind of is like all the, all the thousand worlds books that Martin did were older, like mostly seventies and eighties stuff. And I don't think he's really returned to it much recently. And it's too bad because I think he did a pretty, he did some pretty interesting stuff here at sci-fi universe wise. There's an, and especially yeah. of like mapping a Tolkien esque approach to world building to sci-fi where I think sci-fi is often used in a more, yeah, like short story or Twilight zone kind of way where you're just using a, a small thing to comment on a larger real world thing. Sure. Yeah, no, there, there's another series he wrote that I, I remember reading in his live journal about, um, called, <laughs> I think it's called Wild Cards. How was he feeling when he wrote about this? Do I you remember what was, his emotion was? I like think, hungry or um, excited, maybe? Because <laughs> sure. I think they might be like trying to make it a TV show or something. And it's a that 
you were talking about him not returning to this world, and I was thinking about the fact that he was talking about this series, Wild Cards, which is like a there's an apocalyptic event in New York or something that give that's like radiation based or like a virus or something. Most people die. Other people become monsters, and then like one out of every hundred people becomes like an X Man or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and that also would be it'd be interesting to see what his world building skills do in what is closer to a like comic book mode. Um, so if anybody's interested, I don't know. That's just an interesting thing, and also is like why he maybe is not returning to this stuff right now. Mm-hmm. He, he's he has things to do that are not Game of Thrones, apparently. I just, I also want to throw out there that maybe our boy George R. R. Martin could write more efficiently. Uh, uh-oh. If he didn't do all his writing on an MS-DOS computer that runs WordStar 4.0, which was released in 1987. <laughs> yeah, he's pretty proud of that one. He is, and I've got to imagine all of his publishers are just livid about having to do like four file format conversions to get it into something they can use. Yeah, whatever. Um, So what happens with Dirk and like, does that, how does it just become like a plot plot? That feeds my my frustration because he, he creates this world that is really well done and he's pretty good at telling us about it. And then he kind of populates it with these sad sacky characters who are very like i don't know just the the story like the stuff that's going on here is not super interesting or is novel it, i don't think is it too tied to this like connection between him and his ex-girlfriend and that like is just not interesting or is it yes a, okay oh. <laughs> okay <laughs> Does it become like a save the planet narrative? No. No. Okay. Dirk's field of view is pretty narrow. In uh huh. Um so he gets to this world and he sees his girlfriend and he still totally got the hots for her. Sure. Um and she like doesn't or is seems like conflicted about it. Um, she doesn't like she's she so she's not married to this Cavalar guy, but she is like with him. Sure. And then also with this other guy who is like brother in arms to, to her husbandy guy. Okay. And Dirk is like, well, I didn't know you were still I didn't know you were going to be with somebody else because like they don't have. Like intergalactic Facebook, and they yeah. should, he couldn't like check up on what <laughs> her status was, um, and so they they hang out and they go exploring, and we find out that like he just he always saw her as somebody who she wasn't like a, like an oh. idealized version. Okay. You know, it's a, I think that's a pretty common trope is like you seeing who you want to see and like falling in love with that person. And then that person like realizing that and knowing that they're not that and like resenting it or like, yeah. And what, what makes that interesting usually is the context in which it's placed. If it feels like endemic to it also, like what it sounds like here though, is that it's the version where you have that version of someone in your head and then they like go across space and you don't see them for a long time. And then you meet up with them. 
and it's all and it's not who you thought it was. Well, and so it's it's this whole thing where Dirk is like, "Hey, hey baby, I really think we can make it work. I still love you." And she's like, "Yeah, I used to love you, and I guess I still do in there somewhere, but we know this isn't great and it doesn't work. And it's just it's this repeated thing where she makes her disinterest clear and then he continues to pursue it anyway. And so part of my dissatisfaction with the narrative is probably just like finding that gross. Sure. And yeah. I don't know that that would have been as much of a cons- I don't I just don't think it was something that George R. R. Martin, a white man from New Jersey, was thinking about in 1977. And I'm, yeah. I'm not saying that to condemn him or to make any judgment values. And he does he does do some interesting stuff in this book talking about gender relations just through the whole like Cavalier thing. So like, okay. he's I don't think this is something that he, I don't know. It's just something that, that hit me wrong in 2017 reading it. Yeah. And, and I also think there, there are stories that you can go back and I don't, I wish I had a good example off the top of my head, but like, I feel like there are a lot of John Cusack movies that we're not going to go back to. Like, no, because it's all like it's all some dude just badgering a woman until she succumbs to his sad sack wiles. To and whatever. that's what and that's what Dirk is, is Dirk is just like Oh, oh no. My girlfriend doesn't love me anymore. Oh boy. Oh boy. Oh boy. I don't I don't think I believe in anything anymore. And that's not to say that Which books <laughs> and that's not to say that like stories about romantic pursuit aren't valid anymore. No, and I'm being a, a jerk. No, too, that's, also that's, we're playing for it up comedic a little bit. effect for my comedy book podcast. But it is like he's just, he's a little one note. He doesn't take no for an answer. He doesn't want anything else. And ultimately, if you're not that into him chasing his ex girlfriend, you're yeah. not that interested in his arc. So there's this this conversation Dirk has with some a friend of Gwen's who is there with them who's not a cavalier but is like part of some other race that's known for being sneaky and it feels like there's always a race that you're supposed to suspect of everything all the time. Okay. Um and he says, "Oh Gwen, Gwen doesn't really love this guy because that's not how it works and she's just caught up in all this cavalier nonsense." And Really, she called you because she wants you back. And Dirk is like, oh, really? And so he, like, talks her into leaving with him. And then they go and they get involved with that, like, conservative Cavalard sect and, like, end up inflaming all these tensions that were there under the surface. But, like, nobody was killing anybody before Dirk showed up. Um and then it becomes apparent later that Gwen's friend had the hots for her too and was just like lying. And he's the one who sent this love rock to Dirk in the first place to get him to show up. Like Gwen didn't even want him there in the first place. Uh, okay. And, and yeah. <laughs> well, so, okay. So that's, it, it's interesting is like, and so she doesn't, she doesn't end up with him in the, in the end. Yeah. And the end is the end is left sort of ambiguous. Like you're you're kind of led to wonder whether all the stuff that you just saw was even real in the first place, which is something I don't know that we need to really get into. But, okay, um, cool. 
But yeah, it's like not, the, the main arc of the book is just like him chasing her and her obviously being disinterested in him and then that being what the deal is. <laughs> well, and so something you, we were talking about a couple of minutes ago really just rang true for me. Like, it sounds like there's a tension in the experience of reading this book, or certainly was for you anyway, where there's this like awesome ability to create a world and then like the minute that you have to like tell an actual beat by beat story in it it's you've picked maybe the wrong characters or the wrong relationship well, or just your story feels too small for the world like i think one of the yeah. reasons lord of the rings works is it is a world saving thing and i know not all like all, not all stories need to be not all stories should be like to go back to star trek that's one of the reasons why so many of the movies struggle is that all the movies try to do a save the world thing, and that's just not not what Star Trek does. That's not yeah. a story that every Star Trek is is like built to carry. And so, yeah, like you you've created this this setting that is epic in scope, and then you do something kind of not even dis- just like small with the characters, and it feels like. I don't want to say it feels like a waste. It just doesn't feel like the, the most interesting way to approach the material to me. Yeah, because I, I don't I don't think that it's necessarily like a maxim that you have to make it a, a like save the world thing. I think sometimes that can actually be the the least interesting option, right? Um, but what's interesting too is that when you look at like the Asoif stuff and Game of Thrones. <laughs> uh, you watch him like bumping up against conventions of like heroic deeds and heroic characters. And those are the people who die. And so like, even when someone is being this like classically fantasy character, the, the everyone else is looking at them like, come on, what are you doing? Mm-hmm. Why are you acting like that? Why are you dressing <laughs> like that? Like, <laughs> shut up. And, but, and yet he needs those characters to make the plot move. So there is this like weird tension between like oh I did this fantasy world building that is in it, in and of itself like kind of a commentary on a bunch of world building I don't like and yet to like deliver a plot anybody's going to care about I have I still have to lean into some Joseph Campbell hero stuff. Yeah and, and like to, to the way he chooses to expose the world to you is mostly through dialogue. Sure, sure. And so to have dialogue, you have to have characters who speak it to each other. Most of the time, yeah. And so like, you just you have to have somebody there to, to reveal the backstory. And what ultimately ends up coming to the fore and stealing the show is the backstory. And then you just have to wade through this this character stuff. And I don't, I don't want to make it... I feel like I have the reputation... Sometimes people <laughs> ask which one of us is reading which book when we <laughs> announce a new book list. And sometimes I feel like there's like a right answer to the question because I don't know if there is. I don't know that there is either, but I just, I get self-conscious about disliking stuff because I feel like I'm I'm more ready to do it than you are. I I didn't I didn't not have fun reading the book. I thought a lot of the world building stuff was really really good. I think that Martin does a really good like dynamic followable action sequence. Like there's a oh, there's true. a lot of that yep. in this book. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the characters here just don't do anything for me. So there, there's this, there's this bit that I highlighted, which really got to the the truth of it for me, 
when um, Dirk is talking with um, his name is Jan or Jan. It's J A A N. So you. That's usually Jan. Yeah, but, yeah. Let's, let's call it Jan then. Um, where he's talking with him and he says, well, Jan brought two codes with him when he came to Warlorn, like speaking about his relationship with, with Gwen and also like his relationship to his culture. And then Dirk himself had brought none at all, had brought nothing but his love of Gwen. Oh, cool. And that gets to like, that gets to my problem with Dirk is there's just like, (laughs) there's just nothing else there. But what's funny about that sentence is it sounds like Martin knows that's the problem. (laughs) (laughs) And then it's just like, but dude, then that's what you wrote the book about. Well, I'm not not even saying that's an unintentional thing on on Martin's part. Like maybe I'm responding to Dirk exactly the way I'm supposed to, (laughs) but I, that it's just not, it's not something that, that, works for me as well in like fiction is I just, I have to be able, the characters have to want something and I have to like, even if I don't agree with them, like that's what a lot of good anti-hero fiction does Mm -hmm. um, is like, it makes you root for somebody who's objectively a monster. Yeah. And then you're supposed to like look at yourself in the mirror later and be like, why was I cheering? Yeah. I mean, yeah. If you're doing it right. Yeah. (laughs) But yeah, you're, you're supposed to, you're supposed to make me, want what they want or like want them to succeed or want them to be happy or just like want something for them. But just the, his whole vibe with Gwen, like from the jump, like I don't even know that I can imagine a version of this where they end up together. That feels good. And it also doesn't feel good for them not to get together because he's just come to this planet and bugged her for like days and days (laughs) and set off this killing spree and like made a lot of people really unhappy. So it's it's maybe that's the point of the book, man. Yeah, I'm not I'm not saying it isn't. It's just when I I need a protagonist who's who earns the pro. I need somebody who puts the pro in protagonists. I hate you. I need I'm to so be. Mad at you I need right to now. be pro protagonist. I'm so upset with you. Right and I'm now. I'm not here. It doesn't. Oh my god. Okay. Yeah. All right. Cool. You don't want a contagonist. <laughs> no, I don't. I we good? Don't. You did. You did it. Did I do it? Do you, you have any it. other questions about? Um, like especially in the context of like Game of Thrones or like because you've you've read I think more fantasy stuff for the podcast though I think I've probably read more sci-fi because I did the, the Sparrow for the podcast and, so um, I, yeah I, I read the Sparrow and I, Foundation and a yeah couple of I don't have a Game of Thrones really oh okay I do have a Game of Thrones related question is there a like particular are there any other like historical social constructs or civilizations that you kind of feel are getting referenced so like well let me explain that a little bit in the sense that game of thrones is really sorry a is really (laughs) invested in a particular version of like european middle ages feudalism and like the way that patrilineal dynasties dictate generations of behavior um is there is there anything else like because you talked a little bit about the cavalars and how they work? Are there any other like social systems at play that you think mirror something interesting to us, the reader here? 
I'm just, I'm trying to think because you just you get so little of other cultures and you spend so much time exploring Cavalar stuff because most of the story with Dirk and with everybody turns on an understanding of Cavalar culture and how these people relate to each other. Sure. Um, a lot of the a lot of the emotional beats just don't land if you don't have a good understanding in Cavalar culture. So that's why the book spends so much time <laughs> steeping you in it, I guess. Are there folks um, who are like dissenting from this, like keep women in a box? Yeah. Model? I mean, like Jan is in his way. I mean, being a progressive Cavalar is, doesn't mean like it doesn't say a lot, but no, sure. he at least realize he, he at least recognizes that the way they act now is rooted in specific historical events. Cool. And okay. even though the conditions of those historical events no longer exist, the cultural norms still do. And like, let's reexamine that. That's okay. And sure. I think that's, that's a valuable thing that we need to know how to do now. Yup. For sure. <laughs> Just um, a real good, like, why do we do the things we do? Does that justify still doing it? Probably yeah, not. and then and then you get references to like old Earth and this sure. culture called the Prometheans, I think, where they just genetically engineer people and and Avalon, which is this cultural center that arose like during and just after this interregnum period. Like you get you get snippets of stuff and I'm like, I want, I want to go over there. Like, yeah, no, sure. give it back. I wasn't done. <laughs> I wasn't done learning about that thing that you dangle in front of me. Would, would a like really exciting, like well-written encyclopedia about this world be cool. I feel like that's just foundation. I think that's just oh, the foundation sure. okay. series. If you're going to okay. do that. <laughs> okay, sure. All right. Well, and it doesn't play to his strength of like delivering that stuff through dialogue, which as we've talked about is his deal. Sure. So, all right. Well, if uh you the listener at home have any other thoughts on the Martin Canon uh or on sci-fi world building, you should hit us up. We got an email at overduepod overduepod at com. excuse me. Um and then we got Twitter and Facebook at overduepod. Uh, before I give the list of names here, I want to make sure we mention our live show in Virginia, October 14th, uh, Fairfax, Virginia, at George Mason University, the Fall for the Book Festival. Go to fallforthebook.org for more info. We've also got a Facebook event. Check it out. Um, so Andrew's going to be reading Beauty and the Beast. That's uh, that's the thing I forgot to say. Uh, <laughs> but you can also reach out to us on social media about this episode and all of our other episodes Thanks to a whole bunch of people for reaching out to us in the past week, including Sam, Katie, R.A., Eric, Josh, Kate, Pam, Ames, Dana, Melissa, Jumbro, Mr. J, <laughs> different people, uh, Aaron, Inga, Grace, Graham, Wendy, Steve, Jacqueline, Jake, Tessa, Nikki, Christine, Jaunty, Dame, Cynthia, Albi, Tara, Joanne, and Stephanie, and a bunch of others that I didn't get their names. Uh, thanks. And we'll uh, look forward to talking to you throughout the week. Andrew, what else do people need to know? People need to know how to get to our internet website, which is at overduepodcast.com. We have a bunch of stuff up there. I want to highlight this week our Patreon project, which is a way you can support us financially if you would like to do that. 
Um, people who donate at the $5 a month tier or higher get to recommend a book that we bump to the top of our queue. So Dying of the Light was recommended to us by our listener, Michael. So thank you, Michael, for continuing to support the show and um, to everybody else who's recommended books. Like that's that's the bulk of what we've been reading since we launched this thing in 2014-ish. Yeah. And it's it's exposed us to a lot of stuff that I don't think we would have read otherwise. So so thanks a lot to everyone. Um, we also posted, if you look on our Facebook or Twitter feeds, our September schedule. Craig, do we just want to run through that whole thing real quick? Yeah, let me pull it up. I didn't right. have it like, in what front you, of me. What are you reading next week? Do you know that? I'm reading Little Women by Louisa May Alcott. Nice. Then we're doing A Girl at War by Sarah Novick, The Traitor by Michael Sisko, Bridget Jones's Diary by Helen Fielding, which is one that a lot of people seem excited about. And then we are also, for our bonus episode in September, doing another Q&A episode. So if you have questions you would like us to answer, both about the show itself and about the books we've read, um, shoot something to overduepod at gmail.com and just put Q&A in the subject line somewhere. That's probably the easiest way for us to search for them later. Um, I also am re-listening to the first episode. I'm going to make a list of stuff people have already asked so we don't spend time oh, covering that's ground call. that we've already covered. Yeah, we don't. I don't want to waste you could, your time. I don't want to waste my time. <laughs> as you could, like, We try to respond to emails when we can, and we're kind of bad at it, but we also uh, don't want to make like the weekly episodes like big mailbag segments because we're often talking about books that are not the books we're covering. So this is a great opportunity to like reference an episode that we talked about a while ago and you have a question about but if you put the email in now we can like go back and see what the heck we said which is why you might have a question yes that's it all right guys uh thanks for listening and until we see you next monday try to be happy That was a HeadGum Podcast.